Welcome to the Get Wealthy Podcast, where wellness doesn't suck. I'm your host, Michelle Smith. We feeling wealthy, uh, we getting healthy, uh, we feeling wealthy, uh, we getting healthy, uh, we drinking green. Welcome to Get Wealthy. I am your host, Michelle Smith, and I am joined yet again by my temporary co-host and life partner, Brad. Hello, Michelle. How are you doing, Brad? I'm doing great. And yourself? I'm doing good. Okay. Here's something. I'm feeling very hopeful lately. Okay. I'm feeling like there's a light at the end of the tunnel with this pandemic and things are going to start like feeling very different over the next couple of months. Hopefully. Does that scare you? Because it's going to open up the floodgates to potential new permanent co-hosts. And uh... No, I, I, I feel good. I have the support of our listeners, which means the world to me. Thank you all. Mm. Wow. Keep, keep, keep messaging Michelle about how much you love me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, on to the episode. This episode feels like so special to me. I'm going to out us. After we were done recording it, we fangirled fangirl fanboyed we just fanned we fanned hard (laughs) as we were making our lunch because i really just loved our guests it's dr aisha shares and dr dean shares husband and wife duo which Mm -hmm. was really fun yeah totally to kind of have a conversation that's you know felt like another married couple yeah um but their focus is on brain health they are so dr Aisha shares I. She's finished two residencies at Loma Linda University, one preventative medicine and neurology. And then Dr. Dean shares I is a behavioral neurologist and neuroscientist. And they've dedicated their studies to brain health, which is so important. It's one of those things that I think that, you know, degenerative brain disease seems so far in our future. Yeah. Like when we're 80, and I think a lot of people just assume it's going to happen, that we're going to get dementia. And it's just, part of getting older yeah um but that's just not the case and there's so many really easy things we can do preventatively now that we're really understanding these brain diseases and first of all i love that we could talk to them at like such a high level but they're still so fun and they break it down in a way yeah that i really love doing on this podcast mm-hmm. that they give us these nuggets that are really tangible and understandable yeah um I love that the work that I love the work that they're doing around equity mm-hmm. in healthcare and you know this specific area of brain health and I'm not going to spoil the whole episode. We'll chat with them. We'll get into it. Yeah. Anything you want to add? Uh no, I mean like there's tons of things we can add, but let's get let to people, the episode. We'll yeah. chat after. <laughs> we'll chat after. Enjoy. <laughs> Bye. All right, Dr. Dean and Aisha Sherzai, welcome to Get Wealthy. We are very excited to have you. Thank you so much for coming. It's we are our so pleasure. pleased to be here. Thank you so much for having us. We're excited to be here. Of course. So I love the work that you are doing. I background like back in my 20s, I went through this phase where neurology and understanding how our brain works, all of that. I just went through this phase where I really geeked out. So I'm very excited. I feel like selfish <laughs> that I can just pick your brain right now and talk to you about all of this. So please introduce yourselves to our audience. Let them know who you are, what you work on, and what areas of passion you're finding within brain health right now. 
Well, it's so good to be here. Uh, well, where do we start? I think, Who okay. Well, first of all, we're husband and wife. Um, we're, uh, we're both neurologists. We love um, husband and wife teams, by the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, aren't they well. the best? Yeah. No, it's, it's wonderful to, to you know, find your, your soulmate and your life mate in this beautiful journey and kind of feed off of each other's energy. Yeah. So we're both neurologists. We are the co-directors of the uh, Brain Health and Alzheimer's Prevention Program at Loma Linda University Health, which is a, a large hospital system in Southern California. And Loma Linda also happens to be a blue zone, which is one of the areas in the world where you have the largest number of centenarians, people living over the age of 100. And we're also the co-creators or the co-founders of the Healthy Minds Initiative. And our work is focused on prevention of devastating brain diseases such as Alzheimer's disease, other dementias, stroke. And that's what we've been focusing on for the last, I would 15 say, years. 15 years. <clears throat> Very cool. Dr. Dean Sherzai, would you like yeah, to? Yeah, I'm her husband. <laughs> <laughs> that's no, that's enough. Moving on. Yes. That's yes, my yes. line. You're Michelle, yeah. and then I'm the sidekick. <laughs> um, there's, there's much, much more, I'm sure. Yeah, so we met, um, uh, This uh, we've said this story a few times, but we met 17 years ago, 8,000 miles away in Afghanistan, where I actually, prior to that trip, I was working at NIH in the experimental therapeutics branch of NIH, uh, which is as wonky as it gets, all the diseases that can't be solved anywhere else, they're flown to that building. And Mm -hmm. we did all kinds of experiments and all um, uh, clinical trials on mice, on humans. Um, And um, about 2002, I was asked by um, HHS and World Bank to come back to Afghanistan to help out. I have some management background. And I was supposed to go there for three months um, to help out. And three months turned into three years. We, I, I became the deputy minister of health. I was the youngest minister, uh, the deputy minister in the, uh, in, in the region. Created the whole healthcare system around women's empowerment and leadership and healthcare leadership. And that kind of has stuck around. It's about the communities. It's about the people. Mm-hmm. And my, my, my whole perspective kind of shifted, uh, although it was pushed a little more when we came back. And there I met Aisha in a party where she had gone back yeah. with Doctors Without Borders to help out. Yeah, I was a medical student and I was volunteering with uh, the organization Doctors Without Borders. Mm-hmm. And because I'm a polyglot, I'm comfortable with different languages, they hired me to um, go and speak with um, women, especially mothers and their children, and talk to them about prevention and health care. Um, and in an environment where, you know, one out of five children under the age of five would die because of easily preventable diseases, mm-hmm. we saw the impact of public health mm-hmm. and awareness. And I think that had a massive impact on the choices we've made as adults in our career. And I think, well, the first conversation that we had at that party when we met was about our grandfathers. We both have two grandparents each in our families who suffered from Alzheimer's disease, Mm -hmm. and they were incredible people. They were the ones who set us on this path, passionate, educated, Uh, My grandfather was a surgeon. He was uh, trained at Columbia University and Johns Hopkins, and he 
um, became eventually became the prime minister of the country, and he worked for um, women's health specifically and helped shape the constitution. And Dean's grandfather was the minister of education, and he was a fervent supporter of women's education. And to see these incredible individuals slowly and gradually lose their memories mm-hmm. at a relatively young age where they couldn't recognize their children, they mm-hmm. couldn't recognize their grandchildren, it really left its mark on us. Mm-hmm. And we were intrigued about the brain, about how it works. How is it that 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 a part of who you are can completely go away like that, where you become like a child almost? Mm-hmm. So, um, And that's why we wanted to understand brain diseases, specifically dementia. Mm-hmm. And when we came back, um, Dean joined the uh, UC San Diego. At that time, it was the number one neuroscience program in the country where Dr. Leon Thal uh, did his fellowship. And I got my master's in clinical research and started studying the brain and risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. I was involved in a lot of functional MRI studies. And it's a great field. Um, and we thought that we were going to be involved in finding a treatment for Alzheimer's disease mm-hmm. specifically. But unfortunately, you know, when you've had a life like that where you're fearless and you look at the impact of public health and you are able to look at the bigger picture, we thought that the the entire focus on molecular study, which is absolutely necessary, mm-hmm. isn't complete. That mm-hmm. there is, there should be more. There has to be more that we can do about this devastating disease. Mm-hmm. And so we looked around and we worked with some mentors who were very active in the field of epidemiology and mm-hmm. public health. Mm-hmm. There was one particular um, researcher, Dr. Elizabeth Barrett Connor, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago. She looked at the impact of diet and exercise and lifestyle on cardiovascular health in in um, in that particular area in Southern California, the Rancho Bernardo study. Mm-hmm. And so when we were looking around, we found that Loma Linda, which is a place where you know people live a long life and they're healthy and they're associated with the Adventist health study, um, Dean actually made a cold call and talked to the uh, president, said we would like to come in and, you know, do research on brain health and lifestyle. So that's how our journey started. I uh, got trained in preventive medicine and neurology, and Dean created the Alzheimer's Prevention Program. And we both started doing research in the Adventist Health Study. And um, that the results have been amazing and incredible what we've actually seen as far as the impact of lifestyle on brain health is concerned? Uh, at the time, we actually, about uh, 10 years ago or so, coined the term preventive neurology, and it was a bit controversial. Uh, we were ostracized to some extent. Now it's literally at the center of all uh, neurology and yeah. neuroscience programs yeah. or conferences when you go. Right. Uh, the fact that uh, in, in the Alzheimer's Association International Conference two years ago, the plenary talk was for 5,000 neurologists, the plenary talk was prevention is the new cure, which is what we've been mm-hmm. uh, talking about. And, and this is very unusual for an organization that has been completely focused for decades to look at molecular research and imaging research for them to step back and say prevention is the new cure or prevention is the new treatment. So we've come a long, long way and we've definitely had paradigm shifting uh, concepts as far as brain health is concerned. 
Well, even myself have noticed in the last maybe five years, the real shift from thinking of things like Alzheimer's as a genetic, you know, this is your sentence now, this is what you're going to have, to really understanding that genetics are fluid and can be influenced. And we don't need to just be saying to ourselves, well, my grand, because my, my grandmother actually passed from Alzheimer's as well. Um, and then my other grandmother has dementia. So, you know, on the surface, I think it's easy to say, well, that's, you know, these are genetic components. This is going to happen to me. Whereas I think what we're seeing now and what you're studying and finding is that prevention goes so far. Absolutely. Absolutely. So sorry to hear about your grandmother. Um, I don't think there's any family that really hasn't been touched by this disease because of the the numbers. Yeah, it's the fastest growing, well, outside of COVID, it's the fastest growing epidemic in the West. Yeah. Uh, Currently, 6 million people suffer from Alzheimer's, which is a type of dementia, the Mm -hmm. biggest group, 60% of all dementias. And it's the fastest growing in the sense uh, that whereas other diseases, we're actually managing it, the mortality rate for Alzheimer's has gone up by 145% in the last 10 years. Wow. And so we're talking 6 million in U.S. It will be more than 14 million in the next 20 years. And worldwide, more than 135 to 140 million worldwide. The cost is immense. But of course, the emotional, social costs are just immense, but financial costs, the second cost of this disease is heart disease at 120 billion or so. Uh, dementia or Alzheimer's, direct cost, 304 billion, indirect cost, another $240 billion. And we know that if you just push the disease back five years, not even prevention, mm-hmm. five years, that will cost will be cut in half. I mean, that's why we think that there should be a lot more attention paid yeah. to prevention. Mm-hmm. Well, I think now, you, oh, go ahead. Um, I think too, a lot of people think Alzheimer's, you just start forgetting things and, oh, you can't remember, which is so devastating when you see your family member that you've been so close through, go through that. But as it progresses, the medical ramifications of that, that you don't remember how to feed yourself, the care that's involved and just the, how quickly and rapidly the, body and mind just deteriorate from that. I don't think everybody, unless you've experienced it with a loved one, really realize as it progresses how devastating it is. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah. We've, we've seen it more yeah. than more than we'd like to. And we, we see that constantly in the clinic. The devastation is not just the patient, the anxiety mm-hmm. that it causes to, to the patient where, you know, especially at the beginning stages, they're quite aware of what they're losing mm-hmm. and it manifests in anxiety and anger. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it, the, 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 the evolution is, is, is just devastating mm-hmm. and scary. And of course, the amount of um, work that loved ones and caregivers have to do is is astronomical Mm -hmm. even the cost is astronomical the direct cost being Mm -hmm. 300 billion but when you see the emotional cost uh, in caregivers that's something that's not even addressed in a lot of the numbers that in a lot of the publications and um, they don't have to go through all that right Uh, that's why our focus for the last five years or so has been uh, to translation and um, as, as prevention has become popular, people are still doing those contrived clinical trials. Even, even if it's a lifestyle program, it's a contrived clinical trial. Mm-hmm. We've been saying we're past that. 
Let's yeah. go to the next phase, which is how to translate it to families, yeah. how to translate it to communities. And it's not a one model fit all. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you see a lot of the people that are pushing this concept, they're usually pushing their diet, mm-hmm. the, their personal diet plan or their personal discipline. Uh, uh, for us, everything we do is for the non-for-profit that we support, which is Healthy Minds Initiative. And the idea is to adapt, uh, it's a CBPR model, to adapt a community-based participatory model, mm-hmm. to adapt the lifestyle program to the given community. Mm-hmm. And communities are different. Yeah, You can approach them differently. They will tell you, in fact, the secret to this is to listen to people. Right. Yeah. Listen to people, hear them, what a novel, and know. What a novel concept. Right? What a novel concept. Let's just listen. But, but imagine esoteric scientists or the new lo- lifestyle gurus, instead of just talking, listening to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, for our uh, Healthy Minds Initiative project, we actually go to the communities now through Zoom and all, and actually sit down and have conversations. And there's a method of figuring out what are the opportunities given the city, the, the given community, mm-hmm. what are the impediments what are the tools that we need to bring in to make sure that slowly over time, a behavior is manifest in a way where they don't feel like it's the diet of the day or right. it's the exercise program of the day, but it's actually part of them. Yeah. And if you don't do that, all you're doing is trying to sell your own product. Yeah. So um, um, our, our project has been towards implementing this kind of an approach in, in communities throughout the country and hopefully actually throughout the world. Yeah. yeah. I love that. So let's dig into some of these things that we should start bringing into our awareness <clears throat> that we can start implementing in a, you know, and again, this is going to be different for different communities, but just overall, what are some of the things that we should be aware of that in these last few years that we really start realize, have started to realize makes an impact? Yeah, from from a from a global perspective, it's um, it's what you said earlier. Um, I think it's important for people to understand that uh, even though we're all genetic beings, we have a set of genes that we're born with um, and that we have inherited from our relatives and parents. It doesn't really mean that that is our destiny; mm-hmm. that that will absolutely manifest. Um, and as far as the dementia is concerned, um, and I'm using dementia and Alzheimer's here interchangeably mm-hmm. because dementia is the umbrella term and Alzheimer's is the main kind of dementia. 60 okay. to 70% of dementias are all Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. For, for, for dementias, the genes, you know, the percentage of people who have Alzheimer's disease specifically, and they're totally and completely driven by genes, is only 3%. Only mm-hmm. 3% of all Alzheimer's disease patients are heavily driven by genes, wow. which means that if we do have those genes, there's really nothing that we can do about it mm-hmm. and that it's going to develop very early, very early on. Mm-hmm. But, but 90 plus percent of cases of Alzheimer's disease are polygenetic, which means that there are genes that interact with what you do in life mm-hmm. and they be, they manifest and they get activated and they cause damage to the body mm-hmm. if those factors are not taken care of. For example, we have genes that are responsible for getting rid of waste products from our body. Mm-hmm. We have genes that are responsible for getting rid of inflammation, genes that are responsible for lipid transport or fat transport from cell to cell. 
genes um, that are responsible for getting rid of oxidation, so on and so forth. So even if we have, you know, genes that put us at a higher proclivity for developing Alzheimer's disease, if we live a healthy life, say, for example, if we eat well, if we exercise, if we sleep, if we manage our stresses, and if we keep our minds active, they're not going to get activated. Mm -hmm. And so based on our research and based on the work that we've done in community, when we first wrote the our first book in 2017, we came up with an acronym, self-serving, of course, because we're neurologists, we call it the neuro plan. N stands for nutrition, E stands for exercise, U stands for unwind, or which means stress management. Yeah. R stands for restorative sleep, not the kind of sleep where you take a sleeping pill and you go to sleep, but the right. kind that allows you to go through the deeper stages of sleep. And then O is optimize cognitive and social activities. So mm-hmm. things that give us purpose and keep us active. And I know this is a very brief version of it, but if we take care of these five factors, we can prevent 90% of Alzheimer's disease. That's amazing. Um, I know you mentioned, you know, there's not one specific diet and I'm with you. I think we're just in this cycle of like, you know, whether it's Atkins or keto or whatever it is, um, you know, we cycle through them uh, as a society and, if it really, really worked long-term, they'd still be around. I think people are always looking for something. But I do think there must be some commonality that you're finding within nutrition. So maybe it's not even necessarily just that we should be thinking about it from a diet perspective, but more of a Mm -hmm. nutrition perspective of what's working and what is, you know, contributing to this. So I'd love to hear a little bit more. Beautiful. Uh, so when you look at the data, and, and there's, uh, despite the fact that every day there's the new re- uh, meta-analysis or the new paper of the week, or, but the totality in research, it's not the one paper or the one you know, publication, or even a few. It's the trend that matters. Yeah. Uh, so uh, nowadays, everybody's become aware of randomized clinical trial. Well, mm-hmm. that's great. For nutrition, <laughs> yeah. you can't do truly meaningful randomized clinical trial. <clears throat> because nutrition is something that affects you over 10 years, 15 years. Mm-hmm. A RCT that would give you meaningful results for nutrition would be a, you know, a billion dollar study because it would have to be over 10 years. Yeah, yeah. long, long so, time. Yeah. So, you, so you can't look at just one type of study. You have to look at population-based studies, randomized clinical trials, uh, uh, controlled studies, the, the whole spectrum. And when you look at the entire spectrum, it's unquestionable. It's really unquestionable. Yes, in certain circles, every day some new thing pops up, but the reality is more plants are better. Yeah. Period. Yeah. I mean, if you don't want to go plant, 100% plant based, just go more plant based. Yeah. Uh, I love uh, that's that. the key. So, uh, it, whether it was the Mind Diet, where Martha Morris, um, Rush University, that showed that even MCI patients, MCI is mild cognitive impairment, which is pre dementia stage. <clears throat> which has much higher risk of going on to developing dementia, when they put them on mind diet, 53% reduction in Alzheimer's risk. What now, medication does that? Yeah, I mean, there's right. no medicine that ever does at, that. At all, not even 1%. And right. this is just diet. They actually didn't even look at other lifestyle risk yeah. factors like exercise and sleep. And they controlled for other things, meaning that it was large enough that you could pretty much say this part of it is from diet. When you look at the uh, a women's health study, when you look at the California teacher study where Aisha was the main author of a paper on 133,000 people over 20 years looking at stroke and cognition, 
44 to 50% reduction in, in risk by just going Mediterranean. Now, I'll yeah. tell you what all of these have in common. And an and Avent's health study, where it's been shown that people live nine years longer and healthier. And when we looked at cognition, much better cognition. Guess when you look at all those diets mm-hmm. and you distill down what's called factor analysis, what are the important parts of that diet that stand out? Yeah. Guess what? It's an important part of Mediterranean diet because there's no plants. one Mediterranean diet. It's plants. <laughs> it's plants so yeah. the way they score the Mediterranean diet, they give you higher scores. Well, I'll let the person that did the study oh, speak no, no. to that. I'm, I'm one of the authors, but she's the main author. <laughs> no, no. We, we, we always talk about this all the time. And so, yeah. So like Dean was saying, it's, uh, you know, when you do uh, the, the Mediterranean diet construct is, is created in a way where you get higher score if you eat a particular kind of food and you get a negative score if you eat others. Mm-hmm. It's not black and white. It's not yeah. all or none. It's like a variation of it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so say, for example, if you eat greens, beans, blueberries, nuts, seeds, you get a positive score. If you eat processed foods, refined carbohydrates, and sources of saturated fats like processed red meats and red meat, you get a lower score. Mm-hmm. So what we found was incredible, not just because we kind of knew that it would be protective of stroke, this dietary pattern. But the most important thing that we found out was that it's not an all or none phenomenon, mm-hmm. that every step towards that optimal diet, eating more plants actually made a difference that people had a reduction of stroke. And that's how it is for all of the different diets. And that's, I think that's very empowering because when you go to communities where they don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables, Mm -hmm. where it's a food desert, right? Or for example, because of some lack of resources or lack of finances or lack of access to information, they don't know how to eat healthy, Mm -hmm. that you don't just start preaching to them like, oh, go ahead and eat a plant-based diet or so on and so forth. get the salad. It doesn't (laughs) Right, right. Whatever you can do, even if it's one thing that you can add to your diet that is healthy will make a difference to your brain health. One of the areas, sorry, one of the areas we focus on is habit creation. Uh, I'm a, we're behavioral neurologists. And if it's not a habit, it's going to be forced. And if it's forced, it will fail under pressure. Yeah. So how do you create, so what, what we usually say is the habits that you've created or you have, which is actually 90, 99% of your behavior, even your political beliefs are habits that were created early. So habit pathways are done in a way where it's lower energy state. So the brain doesn't expand a lot of energy. Thinking is high energy state. So, yeah. uh, but if you want to change lifestyle, you have to work on habits. Now, most of the habits that we have have been handed down to us in our teen years, usually in a dysfunctional way, mean usually in a, um, a needy, um, a destructive way. Not all of them, but some of them. So we say, what if we can, what if we give you control over habits, the very thing that's going to make your life? And habit creation is not about all or none. Mm-hmm. It's about measured systematic successes towards a goal. Yes. Measured systematic successes towards a goal. And if you do that enough, it checks the dopamine box enough. All of a sudden, the habits start accumulating. And that becomes your personality. Outside of that, everybody's just throwing in contrived diet plan of the week. Even if it's a plant-based diet, all you're doing is just dictating to them and then they fail and they feel even worse and then they don't go back to that. Right, right. right. And that bar, again, it goes back to that idea when you set the bar up here, 
it's it doesn't feel good and then you <laughs> no. you're not going to chase what's not feeling good for you and what makes you feel yeah. like you failed um i love your approach because it's so much in line with what i've learned in my experience in in the arena of health and healthy foods and all of that is that you need to make it approachable for people. You cannot mm-hmm. just come in and say, You've, you need to uproot everything you know in your life. It has to be sustainable. It has yeah. to be sustainable. And I think too, it's like the way that I've kind of switched my nutrition and the way I'm eating, it was almost a, ra- a ratio reversal. Whereas before I think like I'd wake up and I'd have cereal and I'd have like mm-hmm. my dairy latte and all of this stuff. And then maybe some berries on the side. Whereas now I still have some of that stuff in my diet. It's just a ratio that's been reversed. So I I haven't completely eliminated it. We still have pizza nights with the kids, but we're not having pizza night every night. It's just a reversal. And I think that is so much easier for people to understand when you say you don't need to cut everything out that you've learned to love throughout your life, but Instead, start incorporating these small changes that are sustainable. Yeah, that's so absolutely. True. You're you're right on it. So, uh, one of the things that we wanted to focus on is that to eliminate the sense of deprivation. Mm-hmm. And when Aisha yes. was in Columbia University doing her fellowship um, for two years, I was here with the kids, so we would fly back and forth. Crazy time. And, and the morning she would be <laughs> in the ICU. At night she would be taking cooking classes because. Yeah. Uh, and I think that is more effective than than anything else we learn because if you can't oh. teach people what we call easy, tasty, healthy, mm-hmm. if it's not easy, if it's a contrived you know design of a food that you know comes from France and has all these unusual yep. names, it's not going to happen. Right? Oh my god! Yeah, that's yeah. exactly Preaching that's the that's <laughs> the heart of my cookbooks is exactly that, and it's you know, yes. I'm not going to win a James Beard Award for it, but that's not what I'm out to do. I want to show people these really easy recipes that you can make. They can be elementary. On a weeknight. On a weeknight. That makes it accessible. Like tomorrow, one of my favorites is this uh, spaghetti squash pizza. So we cook up spaghetti squash. Then we spread it out on a sheet pan with the pizza sauce. We load up with some veggies and some pepperoni. Yes. And... It's all, it's like mostly veggies and the yeah, kids love yeah. it and any, but you don't need to go to culinary school to make that. And no. those are the kinds of recipes that are attractive to people because it's a familiar, you know, flavor profile. It's easy. Yes. You don't need to know how to sous vide something like <laughs> that. We're not going to get through to people that way. No, no, I agree with you. And especially when, um, you know, uh, the American Heart Association puts out a report every year. Uh, it's like a progress report card of how we're doing as a nation and as a society as far as our health is concerned. And I think um, I think that needs to be more publicized. It's not as publicized as I'd, I would hope for it to be. So it looks at seven factors. And, you know, these seven factors include things like sugar levels, smoking, mm-hmm. cholesterol levels, physical activity, diet, so on and so forth. There are two other factors that I can't really think of. But so so it's it just kind of shows us good the percent good looks. <laughs> no, maybe. I don't think <laughs> <No. laughs> you're tops for that one, right? I don't know about that. I don't, yeah, yeah. Sure. A1. Thank you. Um, but, uh, but but it actually gives us a percentage. So for example, 
when it comes to um, smoking, there's like a green, yellow, red demarcation. Green means you're doing good. Yellow means we're kind of, you know, behind on everything. And then red means we're terrible. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, for smoking, 87 or 85% of the population, adults, they don't smoke, which is a good number, right? And these numbers vary. When it comes to diet, it's so bad, less than Less than one percent. Zero point five. So it's actually point zero. Less than zero point five percent of adults over the age of fifty actually eat a healthy diet. Wow. And it's even less for for younger individuals. Wow. That's how bad things are in this country. And um, you know, one of the things that we always hear because I think we're connected to each other. So I look at your cookbooks. I hear your conversation. You probably hear about us, and we have these group of individuals who talk about healthy food, so on and so forth. But out there, when it comes to public yeah. health, there's a huge gap of what's being said and what's being understood as yeah. far as health is concerned and what people apply in their lives. Yeah. And so we all have a responsibility of bridging that gap so that we can have conversations, provide resources for individuals to make tiny differences. And that will actually make a huge difference as far as diseases like stroke, heart disease, diabetes, cholesterol, and dementia is concerned. Uh, what we say is uh, we, we hate the concept of, uh, uh, so two words that we don't like is, one is motivation, mm-hmm. because it's an arrogant word. I mean, mm-hmm. you are motivated, I'm motivated. Most of it is because of background and situation and all yeah. that. And then what, what does somebody do with motivation? Okay, so to, not, love Tony Robbins, but let's say he comes and he, rah, rah, everybody gets excited. But how do you inculcate that with, with right. slogans? Slogans do not a life make. It doesn't so, change anything. Anything. It doesn't so, actually so, make a change. Not at all. So, so, what, so motivation, throw it away. What do we, we replace it with a, an optimal goal, but your job is not to be in that optimal goal. Your job is to be where you are, identify where you are, mm-hmm. and love that. Yeah. And then change one element measurably, successfully, so that that actually becomes your thing. You yeah. feel a success. And that actually then creates a cascade in that direction. Yeah. That's actually behavioral science. Now, what, what we have found is this, that, that's, that's what we, in our research, is we say that the optimal is whole food plant-based. That, that's yeah. fine. But there's no way that I would go to a community and say, let's say a community in San Bernardino, no meat, no cheese, no butter, no sugar, no salt. Uh, you know, it would be no shares eyes. So we don't walk away from the fact. We don't walk away. From, yeah, exactly. We don't walk away from what's science. It's yeah. whole food plant-based. And, and as much as you, we do talk about one step of success yeah. because what we see in our clinics in Loma Linda, we have 90 year olds that come and say, oh, I have a little bit of memory problems. And when we check them, they're like, my God, they're better than 99% of population because they're healthy and all that. Mm-hmm. We go to San Bernardino, we do half a day of what's called free clinic or community clinic. San Bernardino is much worse mm-hmm. as far as healthcare. And it's just five miles away five from miles. that healthy place. It's yeah. just right across the highway 10. And we see out of the, I, I should see 12 patients. I see 12, 13 patients out of them literally every day, five of them or six of them, 40-year-olds with strokes. Yeah. 30-year-olds with strokes. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And, and that strokes. Younger and younger. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and, it's, and that strokes. And what we're hoping for is to actually affect before that. Now, we don't, 
if we just change one dietary thing or one lifestyle, forget about diet, stress management skills, yeah, more movement, more natural movement, um, better sleep, more cognitive activity. If we change only 20% of one of those variables, we will have affected that disease by 20%. Today's episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens has become one of my favorite parts of my morning ritual, if I'm being totally honest. I mix it up, I sit down, and I enjoy it. It's super easy to make. This is what I do. Okay, so here's what I do. I take a scoop, add it to a large cup, add some cold water, blend it up. You can use like a spoon if you want, but I like using a frother because I feel fancy like that. Uh, Then add some ice, grab a straw, and I literally just sit down and take a moment and enjoy. It tastes fantastic, but there's also something that feels really good about starting my day knowing that I'm getting a high level of nutrition in it. And I feel like it gets me going. There are 75 vitamins and minerals, whole food sourced ingredients included in Athletic Greens. Uh, Athletic Greens supports digestion, gut health, nervous system, immune system, efficient energy production. There's plenty of antioxidants and superfoods, uh, adaptogens. I love adaptogens um, in there. And so there's just something that feels really almost productive about sitting down and having this moment with my drink. So I love Athletic Greens. I wouldn't be sharing it with you if I didn't. If you would like to start your day with Athletic Greens, check out the link in our show notes. It'll take you straight to their page. Um, If you have any questions, you can obviously always reach out to us on social media or wherever. Shoot us an email. Um, Otherwise, I think you'll really like it as much as I do. And that's insane. These numbers are just, when you look at that, it's just so yeah. hard to process. And I can't help but think too, like you talk about, let's say movement, for example, we are inundated with society. I feel we have these two, two areas here. It's very, we have like healthy eating. You're either, either eating super healthy or you're Correct. driving through McDonald's. There's not a lot of moderation <laughs> that's being promoted. And exactly. the same I think with movement, we see this, you know, movement towards like everyone's doing an Ironman or these extreme sports. We're crossfitting five days a week. Right. Whereas like, you know, it's not sexy to say, go for a walk, go do yeah. a jog. Like yeah. it doesn't have to be this extreme form of movement either, just like it doesn't so with, with diet. So when we're having these conversations and we have these diets or exercise programs that are all in, you're losing so many people. And the, the truth is it's in this like unsexy moderation well, I think yeah. where we find success. Same thing goes for other yeah. things too. I mean, when you talk about like unwinding and stress management, people will say, oh, I, I don't have time, you know, to meditate for, you know, five hours a day like a, Tibet, but, like a Tibetan monk. Yeah. Like you don't have to take, you know, no. four five or five minutes. deep breaths like that. Yeah. I, I, I so appreciate your bringing that up and it's absolutely true. Um, there are several reasons for it. Um, I think in in the world where social media rules how we mm-hmm. how we conduct ourselves, um, I feel that there's a little bit of uh, almost elitism um, yeah. associated with health and and wellness, where you know the 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 brightest and the 
the most sexy looking people yeah. are brought up and associated with health. And, you know, the tools are not essentially given to people to see how they can manage their lives in a, in a way right. where they can have a small little slice of that in there. Yeah. Like you said, you know, just from a science, uh, from a science perspective, just a brisk walk in the morning mm-hmm. reduces the risk of Alzheimer's disease by 45%. Wow. Just a brisk walk. So, and, so why isn't anybody talking about that? Right. Because right. you can't sell it. You can't sell a walk. You can't really sell it. Yes. Yeah. You can't, you can't sell, sell a walk. That was yeah. the first thing when I moved into, um, creating recipe development, healthy foods, cookbooks, all of that. When I really got into this healthy, arena, that was the first thing I noticed. It's so, it's kind of obnoxious. It's very pretentious. It's like, oh, here's my raw food diet and then this and that. And there's not any room for what I'm going to air quote and say normal people to live within. And that was my biggest thing. And I remember telling Brad, it's like, nobody's really doing this very well because- doesn't have something to sell per se. Yeah, and, I mean, eating, eating, and you know, exercising for either longevity or for brain health—that's not sexy. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, you know, yeah. It's, no. it's not something it should that be you normalized. Can, yeah, it should be normalized. And it's so not true. Absolutely. That, you know, you can't just do it for a week or a month and have the effects. It, like you were saying before, it really comes down to, you know, inst- instilling these habits and just making it. A life, it has to be a lifestyle and a lifestyle. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And also working with the resources that people have, right? Mm-hmm. So for example, like 90% of people don't know what matcha latte is, right? right? I mean, yeah, it's really good for you, but who has who has the resources to go and find what matcha is, right? Yeah. A lot of my patients actually don't even know what lentils are. Yeah. I mean, they go from drive-through to drive-through. Yeah. And what we're trying to kind of implement, and this is there's, there's no blame in this. It's just the way things are and how Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if 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 a woman comes in and she's in her 40s and she has four children to feed and she's divorced and she has two jobs right. and she's taking care of a loved one who has disability, do you really think that it makes sense for me to say spend, you know, an hour a day trying to prepare a healthy meal for yourself? No, no. they can't do that. No. So working with where what they can do and changing one thing at a time, meeting them where they are is absolute key. So where do you suggest people that are in situations like that start? Like what is a tangible first step for somebody who doesn't have the resources or privilege or capacity to make this grandiose change that, you know, some people are promoting and what can, what can we do to start promoting that? Yeah. So just some really tangible, meaningful uh, additions to their life. One is, <clears throat> add two servings of greens to your diet. I love that. And, and reduce, I, I always like measurable changes because otherwise we just fall back to our natural state. So reduce your sugar and saturated fat levels by 50% in the next two months. Yeah. And, and, and the way to do that is to really know how much saturated fat you're having in meat, cheese, and others. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that's it. 50% saturated fat, 50% sugar, uh, and processed, uh, but sugar is fine. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then replace it with something because if yeah. it's a sense of deprivation, it's going to give you a lot of trouble. Yeah. So two servings of greens, uh, reduce your saturated fat and sugar in the next two months, yeah. 50% measurably. That's great. Do a morning walk. Start with 10 minutes because we're working on habit, not on exercise initially. Yeah. Start with 10 minutes of morning walk. And believe it or not, 
that morning walk has more effect on your sleep later that night than any medicine you could have had because the morning light resets the circadian clock. I love that. You so have, that's it's that. funny. We've had several guests on here that talk about the morning walk and how yeah. beneficial that is. That early sunlight, what it does to your yes. system, that early movement. And I just, I, it's one of those things when people, <laughs> when, when smart people keep bringing it up, you cannot ignore that. And it's such a simple thing. Yeah. It, it, it's bewildering. Yeah. Sort of. Third is stress management is about, yeah, do three minutes, five minutes of mental um, meditation and mindfulness. We do mindful breathing. But it's not about that five minutes. It's about you becoming over time. Mm -hmm. If you are able to focus six seconds, that's a success. Yeah. Your job is for the next two weeks to increase that to eight seconds. I love that. Then 10 seconds. Now, it's not about that, those, those periods of focus and calm. It's about learning what that feels like and then bringing it into the rest of your daily activities. Mm -hmm. People think it's about that five minutes. It's not. It's about you using that five minutes to become familiar with the calmness, mm -hmm. with the focus. I'm, I'm writing, we're writing something about fo uh, focus being the gatekeeper of all consciousness. If you oh. want one area to build your brain, and that's a whole different talk we can do some other time, <laughs> focus development is critical. So that five minutes of mindful breathing and focus building is about you becoming familiar with that state And then yeah. bringing it to your everything. That's why we talk about mindful dishwashing, meditative dishwashing. It's about making dishwashing, making walks, making conversation, this calm state of focus. So that's the third thing. You know, the way, There's a lot more. The way you just explained it is one of the best ways that I've heard somebody explain the benefits of meditation. Because I think people just hear it and they're like, I can't do this. You know, I can't quiet my mind for that long. What's the point? And they don't really understand, but it's, it's to slowly train your mind to calmly approach life and obstacles. And it's just that small training, just, and that the way you just explained that was so spot on. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the fourth one is sleep. Now I know people talk about uh, sleep hygiene, uh, get rid of light, get, you know, get rid of sound and all of that stuff. But here's another thing in our life, In the 21st century, we're all running. Mm -hmm. All these thoughts, all these worries, all these anxieties or mini angsts that mm -hmm. I call it. Yeah. What happens is every time you go to bed, there's nothing else. So these thoughts come. And after a few years, the bed becomes associated with thinking and yes. worrying. Oh, my and, gosh. And exaggerated <laughs> worrying. And I start, to, and, and this is me personally. I'm at that point now that, especially this last year, I have not done a good job managing this focus development and it's just my attention's been scattered and anxious and all of that. Yeah. And then I start, I find now I start dreading bedtime. Like I can almost yeah. physically feel that dread of going to bed because your mind's just racing. And so yeah. that's exactly <laughs> it. Like we need to do all these things so that this is a beautiful, peaceful place yeah. for us. Right. But, but here's a trick. Yeah. So your bed has become associated with thinking and worrying yeah. and the worry is exaggerated because there's nothing else. And all of a sudden that neighbor that looked at you becomes a you know, whole ass <laughs> assassination plot or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. But what, what you do is disassociate. So uh, for a while, have a low level light because you don't want the bright lights or blue lights because when you wake up because it's going to wake you up. Yeah. So have a low level light so you don't fall and break your legs. Get up from bed, sit on the chair next door or on the ground, have a notepad, 
in a bullet format, write those write thoughts, not in a manifesto. Terrible <laughs> things happen when you write manifestos late at night. Yeah. Late at night with no light. We've seen them. Yes. yes Michelle, yes. we've seen them. We've seen them. Just bullet format. And then put it next to your bed. And then in the morning, read them and you'll realize that they weren't that big a deal. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's so right. And I'm like, why yeah. was that keeping me up? Yes. Oh and, gosh. and the thinking was done outside of the bed. This is, and of course, this is not going to happen overnight. You didn't get there overnight. Don't expect to get out of it overnight. So it's going to take a few months of this dissociating. And believe it or not, it's better than any medicine. Of course, uh, we know that medicines, short term, they're fine. Long term, they affect the depth of sleep. Right. We're doing the largest study on sleep, 1,000 people in Loma Linda, and medicines affect that. So instead of that, not instead, over time, you'll see that this method disassociate worrying from bed. So the last one, optimize, O, then mm-hmm. O in neuro, is it's not about Sudoku or crossword puzzles. Mm-hmm. It's about finding a purpose that's challenging that you can actually do for the rest of your life. So learning a new musical instrument, learning new dancing, uh, running a project, um, uh, 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 book clubs, playing cards with friends, all of these, but, but it's better if it's a per- little bit higher purpose mm-hmm. that challenges you has been found to be the most protective thing for the brain. Mm-hmm. So in studies, we always use education as a marker of protection, yeah. but that's because that's easy to say 10 years, 12 years. No, it's actually mental activity. So mental activity connects those neurons. We have 87 billion neurons. Each of them can make a couple of connections or as many as 30,000 connections. And what determines that connection is good environment, which is good nutrition, good sleep, good stress management. But what grows those connections 30,000 times is exercise and mental activity. But the kind of, we did the largest meta-analysis published on PubMed uh, two years ago. It's about purpose, complexity, and challenge. So find something that means something to you, makes you, ch- push you, pushes your brain to think, and that actually is more protective than anything else. So I hate to do the selling thing, but our book, oh. The 30 Day, is about this. This is perfect, and I want to chat about this. I'm so glad you brought it up. You have a new book coming out. Yes. Has it ha- what day is it coming out? It hasn't come out yet, Correct. Um, no, no, it, it's, it's coming out on March uh, 23rd. Okay, perfect. Um, but it's but, available yeah. for pre-order now. Okay. Um, and we're really proud of it. You know, we um, when we first started on this journey, we thought that we were just going to be researchers. But um, because of everything that we just talked about, I think it's really, really important to be able to disperse this message of hope mm-hmm. and the information to everyone to to let them know that there's a lot we can do to lead a brain healthy life, that we don't have to suffer from diseases like Alzheimer's and stroke. Um, and, and I think that has been the anchored message of the Healthy Minds Initiative, our non-for-profit. And all of the profits of the book actually go to the Healthy Minds Initiative. Uh, and the goal is to essentially create brain healthy ambassadors, individuals who can spread this message into their communities and take the lead. I love and, and And this project actually is a research project. So we're actually collecting data. Right. We are leading the largest brain health initiative and research project in beach cities. Uh, we're starting the, one of the largest uh, projects in the African-American churches. Uh, we're starting a project in New York. We have a statewide project in Arizona. It's coaching model with, uh, with technology. 
and all of the, it's non for profit. So all of the profits of everything we do actually goes towards uh, right. this initiative right. to, uh, to help communities empower them. That's so amazing. It makes me excited. I feel this conversation with you lights me up because I feel that there are other people that are understanding the changes that need to be made. Like, on a micro and macro level and yeah. how to accomplish that because we haven't really seen that so much so far. And that is just such a beautiful thing. It's like, it's things like this that give me so much hope <laughs> for change in communities and just within our health. This last year, it, let me just say, has yeah. not given me that hope. And it, it's just been, it's been hard on my brain to see yeah. kind of it. And so projects like this and the work you're doing. It's just, this is the heart of it. Thanks so much, Michelle. No, I, um, I agree with you. I think the one thing that we learned last year or this, this past year has been the fact that we need to learn more how to take better care of ourselves. And Dean and I are both physicians. I mean, just, <laughs> it was, I almost ran late uh, for, for this podcast, but, you know, we work in the hospital. I work in the emergency room. Today I was in the emergency room. And then you see these individuals coming in. Like, for example, today I had a 42-year-old woman come in with a massive stroke and she couldn't move the right side of her body. She couldn't speak. She could hear me. She could understand me. She couldn't speak. And she has this raging uncontrolled diabetes, high blood pressure, cholesterol. And I was speaking with her and she was crying. And we were holding her hand saying, mm -hmm. you're going to be okay. You're in the hospital. But the reality is, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are suffering because mm -hmm. of things that can be prevented. Yeah. And, you know, things that we can do every single day so that they don't go through that pain. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, it's a, it's a very selfish endeavor because we get a lot of energy from it because, you know, you, we don't have to wait in the clinic and the hospital for people to get sick to come. Mm -hmm. It's time we all moved out into the communities mm -hmm. and have had this conversation yeah. and empower each other to, to tackle this major yeah. issue that is brain, the, brain health. Yeah. I have a question for you that's a little bit off topic, but slightly related. <laughs> Something that I've observed this last year is that I've started questioning whether people actually do value their health. I think there's been attitudes towards COVID that have really permeated loudly. And it's made me wonder, do people care about their health? Because, you know, let's just say statistically, I would survive COVID. I understand that. But I also understand I don't want chronic long-term issues from that. I very much value my health and life and vibrancy. So I think there's obviously sets of the population that don't have the opportunity or privilege to stay home or, you know, they have to go out to work and they're feeding their family. I understand. And that's a different category. But I've just seen this proliferation of people that are like, I'm fine. I don't care. How do we make people hmm. care? Because I feel that can also translate to nutrition is that, you know, I don't know if people are value in their health. And I also hmm. wonder if that is a product of this privilege we have that permeates our country, that we do have very a lot of resources here that people take for granted. I'm not sure, but it's something yeah. that I've really thought about this <clears throat> year is that are people caring about their health? How can we? Well, I, I think one of the issues, and I'm sure, I'm sure you both can speak to this too, that I think a lot of people just don't like to think long-term. And it's so much easier to think in the short term. Yeah. But obviously, yeah, everything yeah. we were talking about, it's not, a, it's not a quick fix. 
We realize kind of that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we're we're evolutionarily designed to think about the the near future. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know that our our frontal lobe, the newest member of the brain community, yeah. is there to help us push us a little past the immediate. Yeah. But we know from research that the emotional brain is mm-hmm. as 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 old and antiquated as it is. What we call the limbic brain, the emotional mm-hmm. brain. It's still more powerful than even the most powerful frontal lobe. Front and center. Most, yeah, I mean, uh, we're not going to name names, but uh, uh, some of the greatest physicists we know, uh, uh, you know, at the moment of uh, uh, they give into their uh, limbic emotional brain and cheated on their partner or they did something bad yeah. and all of that. So the emotional mm-hmm. brain is going to take over. We know this with food. Yeah. Uh, when we're under stress, no matter how we have planned, unless we've planned it, you know, it takes a lot of planning yeah. that, that emotional blame takes over. So it's not a blame thing. It's a fact that the mechanism is there yeah. for the emotional brain to take over. And now add to that a sense of loneliness and the opposite of that is a sense of community. So the powers to be, be it, uh, sorry, I'm going to get a little political, be no. it right or left, yep. be it Republican or Democrat, be it this or that. They've created an environment of, of groups Mm-hmm. And and since we want to be part of a group, then that group mentality also gives us a comfort and creates confirmation bias. Confirmation yep. bias is we like hearing what we like hearing. We actually search for things we like hearing. Mm-hmm. And then that actually gives us further comfort. Yeah. So the immediacy of the present, uh, there's a statement that says people love hearing good news about their bad habits. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, uh, uh, if you go to certain groups that I, I grew up with in Pittsburgh, and if you throw a bunch of messages and one of them says beef jerky is going to help you avoid, avoid this, uh, dementia and stroke, yeah. that will become number one. <laughs> uh, 20 years ago, that would have been number one for me. That would have definitely been number one for me. He will rally around beef jerky. <laughs> A rally around that. So we like hearing or what Snickers we, bars. we don't need yeah. to change. I am good. This is, this is comfortable. And oh, and this group makes me feel comfortable mm-hmm. to get out of that, all of us, mm-hmm. and say, where's the data? Yep. Well, and I have to do a little bit of work. And I, this is not a blame thing. What has to happen <clears throat> for the leaders, and I hope we're one of them and you're definitely one of them, which is promulgating well, information. I'm saying, definitely one of them. You are absolutely <laughs> most <definitely> Yes, <laughs> is, is to go database. Yeah. And and not clan based, not group based, but database. Yeah. <clears throat> Data shows that eating a certain way kills people. Mm-hmm. And we see it massively. And I'm passionate about it. And I'll, I'll argue with people day on. Uh, and, and making environments is more important than and lecturing people. So getting cities to be more healthy. A friend of ours, Dan Butner, who wrote the Blue, uh, Blue Zones, is actually working on that. And we are actually in our own way doing the same thing. Instead of judging people, giving them the resources, talking to them, more importantly, listening to them, to figuring out what is the opportunity to bring change in their environments, instead of just, you know, I should give a beautiful scenario. A single mother, three jobs, Mm -hmm. uh, a food desert, meaning that the closest place where they can get healthy foods is 20 miles away, and five children... And all of that, and but but then there are twenty fast food restaurants right. on the way from work yeah. to home with a dollar cheap. menu, cheap and, too, yeah, and cheap, dollar menu. Uh, uh, subsidized and cheap. And you think that us judging that person is sane? 
we're insane. Right. Absolutely. The person that's judging that person is not only insane, doesn't know science, doesn't know behavioral science, is actually causing harm. Yeah. yeah. Instead of that, we say, listen to people. They want to change. But how do we create environments? How do we create resources? How do we create conversations that can make that behavior happen 10% at a time? Yeah. No, 5% at a time. Yeah. yeah. And that's where, you know where it happens? You're making that happen. Every time you're coming to a conversation like this in a complex way, not in a simple-minded way, which you look yeah. at this beautiful, right. you, you are more of a public health advocate than a hundred scientists out there. Right. And I'm not okay. giving you a fulsome flattery. Believe well, me, I'm not the type. I'm, a, I'm an honorary bastard sometimes. Thank you. I think I just found a spot that wasn't being served. And I'm like, we're talking about this all wrong. Yeah. This is how I look at it. And it's not, it doesn't have to be so difficult. Like we just yeah. need this information and not in this like really media driven society advertising. Like if I look at the Super Bowl, like all the ads are for crap. Like yeah. it's all yeah. crap. There's nothing yeah. healthy so about sad. it. And no. so, but it's we, light crap though. Right. <laughs> it's diet crap and light crap. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's like, like that's better. Yeah. And you know, and so it's like, those are the messages that we're getting bombarded with. That's a big scale. Super Bowl is a huge scale. That is our, yeah. you know, whatever it is, that's what's reaching society. And so how can we start shifting that? And like, it doesn't have to be like the way uh, this, like this, this one this complex conversation. conversation at a time. Yeah. Your cookbooks, uh, us uh, deciding to be on IG Live and telling people to eat more greens, you know, things like that actually work. And um, there were days when we would wait for a bigger organization Mm -hmm. to actually give mandates and guidelines. But these are different times. We can actually be a great resource of true op- uh, you know objective evidence of how to lead a healthy life absolutely so and i think everybody has the uh, the the everybody should get the uh, information everybody has the right, right to know what is right one right. of the things that we've been withholding from people is we don't think that they can actually change right. but that that shouldn't be the way we should actually give them all the resources and help them make the right decisions for themselves yeah absolutely I feel like I could talk forever with you both. Brad and I, I'm like, this is Same. this is what I love. This is like this podcast. This is my passion. This is what I just yeah. love. Um, but I won't keep you all day. Uh, so please let our audience know where they can find more information about what you're doing. We know your book's coming out. I'm going to link to that in the show notes. We'll also share that on our social <clears throat> media channels. Where else can we find you? And is there anything else that you guys want to share? Thanks, Michelle. Um, the book is called The 30-Day Alzheimer's Solution. Mm-hmm. Um, it is available everywhere. Um, our website is teamsharesi.com because we're a team. Yes. Um, and we're... <laughs> Brad's going to start saying we're team get wealthy. Like he's going to start... That's right. And, and there you go. That sounds amazing. Um, and we're sharesimd on social media. Uh, we're very active. We love interacting with everyone. And if people want to learn more about our Healthy Minds Initiative and volunteer and take part in it, they can go to healthymindsinitiative.org to learn more about our research, our community-based approach to brain health, and we'd be happy to connect with them if they want us to come to their community and start the conversation. Fabulous. Thank you so much. This has been fantastic. And 
I'm probably going to tap you guys to come on again some other time because I, I can't wait. To. <laughs> there are so many things we could chat about and dive into. So thank you That's... for taking the time to speak with us. Yeah. Thank you thank for you doing so all the work that you're doing. It's just, just amazing. Uh, we're so glad to be connected with you. Thank you. And with that, I think our listeners will see exactly why we fanned so hard <laughs> about them. Aren't they amazing? Yeah, they really are. I mean, it's oh. to me, it's just like so telling. Like, it's just awesome to see people that have just like mastered like their craft like mm-hmm. so well. I mean, they're literally neurologists they're literally brain doctors. super freaking smart oh yeah i mean they're very underaccomplished they need to they need a few more degrees and <laughs> phds Projects. and master's <laughs> master's degrees but but it's amazing that somebody who obviously that they're they're both like super intelligent but they're still like so approachable and they're so drilled in to society and what society actually needs in terms of healthcare. Right. Because that's what I find. And honestly, that's such a huge part of why I wanted to start this is because there's so many experts out there just putting out information and it's just, there's no trickle down effect. There's no approachability to it. That's And And they're actually doing it. Yeah. And one of the things I I loved how uh, Dean was like really good about saying like, Dr. Dean Brad, sorry, Dr. Dean, (laughs) <laughs> hey, we're we're a casual, know, we're a casual bunch here. We're and a casual bunch. Like I, he's just like not the guy that he, would care. I don't think he would care either. if I called him Dean. So I, my apologies to you, Doctor Dean. Um, but when he says, when he says um, again, I forget what the exact number was. But all right, if you you know in, include daily exercise, then that lowers your How chances. How drastically, yeah. Yeah, of 40%. I'd have to go back to the episode to see what the exact numbers are. But I love how he's able to drill down and say, like, if you do this, then your chances reduce to this. Mm-hmm. If you do this. And the things that he's saying to do are just so simple. There are things that anybody can do. And it's a tr- it's something that different community can, can mm-hmm. come to. It's not, you know, promoting some fancy supplements of you need this. This is the only way that you're going to do it. Yeah. It's just this realistic approach of like, how can we make a difference realistically? Yeah. And that's so and his, refreshing. And his approach and his philosophy about habits, to me, that was kind of yeah. like the almost like the biggest takeaway. Yeah. Again, like somebody so intelligent and so smart in his, in his chosen fields, but then he's able just to drill down and just say – you know, talk so succinctly about yeah. habits. Well, and I just love it. Like Dr. Aisha, Dr. Dean, they're just in tandem and they understand it. Can you imagine if the medical community as a whole and scientific community could really adapt this mindset? What a difference it would make in preventative healthcare. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, we're not there yet, but I think there's been great, <clears throat> great strides towards that um, mm-hmm. with people just kind of understanding more, just not treating everything I guess call it like a Western medicine approach where it's more treatment as opposed to prevention. So I, I kind of feel, feels more clinical. Maybe? Yeah. I kind of feel things are kind of leaning that direction in terms of, you know, just promoting, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, prevention and just kind of overall healthy habits that mm-hmm. will help people in the long run mm-hmm. instead of just waiting and then treating, mm-hmm. you know, some horrible disease or condition that mm-hmm. is that, that comes as a result from, Mm-hmm. treating your body like an amusement park for yeah. 80 years. Well, and I think too, and it, it, you know, I, I think Dr. Aisha mentioned it. She was just coming mm-hmm. out of the ER, coming mm-hmm. out, coming back from work before we recorded and had mentioned a stroke patient, a young stroke patient. Like she's in the trenches seeing the effects. Yeah. Yeah. And these are things <clears throat> that we haven't seen at these, these ages before. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing I want to point out too, is they'd mentioned stress. Like how often does stress come up? <laughs> 
holy smokes like all of our guests and i'm like i meant to make a comment like during the episode but i'm glad you brought that up because that that definitely rang a bell for me because like in case you guys haven't noticed we keep coming in keep coming in contact with the same themes almost if not every episode like every other episode stress stress is a huge one being outside is a big one yeah a daily you know moderate exercise not Bits of mindfulness. Yeah. It, we just kind of, kind of keep coming back to this. You know things. what no one's come on here saying? What? Out of all of our guests, no one has come on here saying that the road to wellness or health is some strict diet, fad, or <laughs> training for an Ironman or anything. There's not been one guest that says that. True. And so that's, I don't know. And, and six packs aren't part of it either. No, six packs aren't and they never will be for me. I don't think. I just don't have that. God, you've given up hope, man. I'm working on mine hard still. <laughs> but I, but like when you, you keep like using Iron Man as kind of your example, I, I CrossFit. Think- no one's sitting here saying you need to CrossFit. I'll throw CrossFit on their bus. I've always disliked CrossFit. I think it's weird and cultish. I know you did it for a while. CrossFit sucks, and I think the people Whoa. minus yourself. I'm just no. not into it. I am not into it. I'm sorry. Wow. Where is that coming from? I'm sorry. From? You've known I've not been into it. I supported you doing it. I th- I loved it. I thought it was I thought it was Ugh. fantastic. I, I really Ugh. enjoyed it. And I mean, I'm going to get myself in trouble with this. You one. are. People are going to. That's okay. Hate, I don't know. Who's is anyone crossfitting still? Yeah. Well, they're not talking about it nearly as much. <laughs> Probably all injured. All right. All right. <laughs> Anyway, but, but I do think I do think that there is a place for, you know, I'm very challenge driven. I like doing kind of. Yeah, but big, that's also a personal. Yeah, but I mean, you don't have to do an Ironman. You don't no. have to do a marathon. You don't have to do any of these. You don't have to CrossFit five times a week. I'm but gonna, let's put that in a hobby bucket versus like a road to health bucket. Right. But yeah, no. Which I, I think some people do. Most people don't. They're like. Yeah, I, I think just finding the level that's sustainable for you because what we're seeing here and again we're speaking about longevity it's not about going out and doing one marathon and just checking it off your bucket list and then you're going to be in a perfect state of health for the rest of your life no Mm -hmm. it's about the small incremental consistent things that you do so if that means that you can walk for 15 minutes a day every morning perfect that will probably more i mean that that will probably have the biggest effect out of most things you could do but it's these it's just these small consistent things like Dr. Dean was talking about habits. It's just building these healthy habits and just doing that over mm-hmm. the course small of small healthy habits, small healthy habits. Yeah. Like even one I always think too is like, I get a question all the time on Instagram where I don't even know where to start. Just stop drinking soda. <laughs> Find yeah. something else. There's like so many mineral waters. If you like, I, you know, I love my beverages, yeah. but I never drink soda. I used to be a diet Coke fiend. Oh, same. Just, I still like the taste of a good Diet Coke. Well, maybe not. I, I haven't had I haven't one had in years. It, I'd say at least maybe two years. Oh, I haven't had one in like five years. You have grabbed one as like a meal deal like a couple years ago, but it's been a long a time. meal deal. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I haven't had one. You know what I did have the other day, though? Hmm. This was the first soda I think I've had in a long time. Some root beer. Oh. With uh, some pizza. Okay. But it was like Cameron's birthday beer party or like night. A cream soda or something like that. Um, like I couldn't even drink half. of What? How old are you? <laughs> I think you lied to me when we married. Um, I didn't even drink the whole root beer thing though. Like it was like maybe like not even half, like of the little bottles. Not even. Yeah. It wasn't like a half of two liter. <laughs> but it was just kind of like a fresh thing, and then I just it was fine. Yeah, flavors are great. Just super sweet. I just can't. 
that level of sweetness is. I know. I'm like kombucha. I and there's so many choices out there. Yeah. Some are cost prohibitive. I can understand yeah. the appeal of going to get your big gulp versus like yeah. whatever. But we should be drinking water anyways. I was gonna say if cost if cost is an issue, just drink water. Yeah. Nature so. kind of got that one right. One thing um, too, and I actually meant to elaborate on it, and I wrote it down. Um, was I think it was Doctor Aisha, and I, I maybe it was Doctor Dean. I can't remember. They had mentioned that there's kind of like a ten year period that kind of dictates your nutritional health, kind mm-hmm. of something like that. And that really struck me because you know I think so many times we're focused on these like daily macros of every meal, and for me, I've never done that. Yeah. Um, because I look at this bigger picture. I just think the way our bodies process things isn't necessarily just meal by meal i kind of look at it like per day like did i have a healthy amount of vegetables because if i have a huge giant salad at lunch but i just had some scrambled eggs and coffee in the morning like i don't think it's gonna throw things off that much like i look at my overall daily intake versus like each little bit of what i eat yeah you know or each little meal like it's pretty balanced but i'm not gonna stress out if i don't have you know, a protein in every meal. Oh, for every or meal. No, whatever. I think it's no. I think it's more like the long run and what yeah. you're getting throughout the day. Totally. But if you I'm if just, you have if you have different you know training goals or if you have different activity levels, then you need to eat for that mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. But in general, I think just looking at it on a daily basis is yeah. the right way to do it. Can we go back to something kind of this like CrossFit extreme sport or like <laughs> workout thing? Because sure. I think that. You know, especially with social media, we see people that are sharing their workouts all the time and doing this and really, like I said, that they're into CrossFit, they're into whatever it is, yeah, and they're sharing it and promoting it as a way to health. But what we're not seeing is like, this is also a hobby for them. Mm-hmm. If they're spending two hours a day at the gym, these are also like people like find joy and this is their job or they have found this as a hobby. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it has. it's going to translate to our lives, or should it? Right. And I think that people need to be a little bit more upfront with that concept of it versus like, yeah, this is how you get healthy. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because I think that it, you know, I obviously, mm-hmm. being on social media and seeing all the bullshit on there, can see through it. Yeah. But I think average, I don't know how much average consumers of it they just see that and it's just like oh okay yeah no i mean it's nowhere nowhere in it says that you have to do you know two hours a day to no. whatever. and if I you mean, love that that is fantastic yeah that's great yeah but i mean with there there is like there is scientific evidence that shows probably like that the most not probably that that the most effective workout is like a high intensity workout yeah. but that doesn't mean that you maintain that high intensity over an hour two, or two hour period no it's like 10 to 15 minutes yeah. you can get an amazing amount of work done in 10 to 15 minutes yeah. and then if you do that a couple times a week with other moderate um cardio and types of exercise then, yeah. then you're golden but yeah i mean they've there's actually i'd have to um pull out exactly where i read that but um the high intensity stuff again really short intervals a couple yeah. times a week yeah is kind of a sweet spot for yeah. activity. Yep. But, so I like my bike. Yeah, no, that's great. And like, it's just easy and convenient at home. Yeah. Do whatever. And then I do some squats and leg stuff and body weight. And there you go. That's it. I'm done in 30 minutes. Perfect. Like, and then we go on and we've, we're now doing our daily walks. Yep, absolutely. So I love them. 
by their cookbook. We'll link to that in the show notes. Everything. Yeah, can't, can't wait for that to come out. Their up. website will be there. They're just amazing. I love them. They're absolutely going to be on our fic- fictional Netflix show. <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. I'd even do a spinoff with them <laughs> because I'm like, how cool would it be to do a show that is like really fun and informative, like creating equity in healthcare and yeah. like I would do a whole spinoff with them. Wow. Well, well, we should get the Congratulations. You guys just got we a fictional a, spinoff. I just, I just handed them a, <laughs> a show. Let's see. Let's get the first one going. All right. Well, we will see you guys never because this is an audio show, I guess. I forgot. We'll we'll chat with you next week. Sounds good. All right. Bye, everyone.